We are discussing the statements Jesus made about himself, which all of them, by the way, are found in the Gospel of John, to explore the Gospel and hunt, as it were, for the different statements Jesus made about himself would be a worthy venture in of itself. To see the Gospel through that lens of how Jesus defined himself would be definitely worth our time and effort. But we are going to kind of unpack one by one each of these statements. Last week we launched into this. This week we're going to be launching into Jesus' claim that has to do with light. If you open up your handout, we'll just read together that we're told in John 8 and verse 12 that Jesus spoke to the people once more. And he said, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Because you will have the light that leads to life. See, Jesus makes a statement that no doubt caught the attention of everyone who would have heard him. It was meant to do just that. It had words that gravitated towards the cosmic. It's no small thing, Jesus said. I am the light of the world, he said. And yet Jesus wasn't speaking in any random location in the ancient Near East or in Israel itself. He was speaking in a significant place, location, that was extremely important to his people. It was in the city of Jerusalem that he was saying these words. And it wasn't just anywhere in the city of Jerusalem. It was within the confines of the temple where all of Israel would gravitate towards throughout the year to worship God. They believed that God's presence dwelt there. So Jesus says these words in a significant place, but it wasn't just the location he was in. It was the timing of when he decided to reveal this about himself. See, Jesus said these words at the end of a week-long celebration that is known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a, it was a fall season harvest time festival. It was meant to commemorate a period in their ancestries story in which God was able to lead Israel out of captivity and slavery and into a place in which there was nothing that could be cultivated and yet God provided. In the midst of where nothing could be harvested, God provided what was needed to sustain them. And in this time of them celebrating their own harvest, and now that they were in a land that they could actually cultivate, they had this week-long celebration meant to remind them, look, Yes, we are the ones cultivating the land. Yes, we are the ones working it and tilling it and watering it, nurturing it so that it produces its harvest. But let us never forget that God is the one who provided what we are now reaping. In the same way, God sustained us through the desert where nothing could be harvested. He is sustaining us now in the land of plentiful and much. It was a great week of celebrating God's faithfulness to his people. But that week would end, they would, it would culminate, it would have a capstone of this celebration called the Illumination Ceremony. And the Illumination Ceremony was um, a special time in this week-long festival in which that evening what they would do is they would bring out these candelabras that were about 75 feet in height, they would say. And the candles would have as their wick the old garments of the priest's robes. And they would be the wick and they would light up the entire temple. And this, this ceremony was meant to illuminate not just God's ability to provide for them in the desert, but it was meant to remind them, do you remember our, the story of our ancestors? In the night sky, in the dark, was a pillar of fire. And it illuminated the path. And it remained their security and their 
direction. He was their guide. And the ceremony wasn't just any ceremony. It had, it had music. People would come and play instruments. The different officers and musicians of the temple would come and play. There would be dancing and singing. There would be food. And some say, some, some rabbis have said that back in that day, they would say, if you had not experienced the illumination ceremony, you have not heard and tasted true joy. It was that amazing. Some would even say this ceremony would light up the entire night sky and all of Jerusalem would be lit by the temple. Some have sought to make a rendition of what this may look like and ask them to just put a couple examples of what this would be. This is just so we understand over 2,000 years ago, before modern day electricity, before lights were able to illuminate the night sky. It would be spectacular for their day. And it would be in the midst of this illumination ceremony, celebrating God's faithfulness in their history, that Jesus would step with this as his backdrop. You step forward on the city on a hill, and he would say, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. See, Jesus was saying something profound. He was uniting himself to the celebration and using this poignant moment in their own history and saying, if you could hear it this way, Jesus was saying, yes, we are celebrating God's faithfulness to a people group. I am declaring God's faithfulness to the world. That is what I am. It would be a statement of cosmic proportions. It would be something that would have gravity, great implications. Around everything this, everything else would rotate if it was true. And those who were listening had to wrestle with what they were hearing this man declare. There was no mistake about it. Jesus was declaring something that was so far out of the realm of what many of those were comfortable with him declaring. Some of those were Pharisees. They were the religious leaders of the day. And John records in verse 13 that the Pharisees replied, um, you are making those claims about yourself. Such testimony is not valid. In other words, okay, you know what? They, first of all, they were gravely uncomfortable with what he was saying. They were not okay with it. It was too far outside of what they were okay with. And so they immediately attack his credibility. And what do they say? Okay, Jesus, if this were true, you wouldn't have to point it out. It'd be evident, all right? You're making this claim about yourself. Somebody else would point it out if it was true. So Jesus steps in to this, what becomes somewhat of a verbal jousting match. And Jesus told them, these, these claims are valid, even though I make them about myself. Let's make no mistake about it. For I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you don't know this about me. You don't, you just, let's just clarify. What I'm saying is absolutely true. He doesn't back down. He, he doubles down. And he says, in fact, 
you don't know me. You just simply don't know me. All right? And then he goes, you judge, verse 15, you judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct in every respect because I am not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. See, let's just clarify. First of all, you don't actually know who I am. Secondly, you judge me, you try to perceive me according to your limitation, and you are severely limited. Now, you're trying to judge me, and you're wrong. But if I would judge you, which I'm not going to, but if I were, boy, I would be completely accurate in my conclusions. <laughs> Just a nice room. Don't get into an argument with Jesus. <laughs> not a good idea. And then he says, listen, you think I'm alone here. That's part of the problem. But you don't realize this. God is right here with me. <laughs> this statement is incredible. And then to kind of just like make sure he addresses what they were saying, he says in verse 17, your own law, by the way, says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. Fine, I will play according to your rules. I am one witness, and my father who sent me is the other. Okay? So according to your rules, I qualify. And they, it, what Jesus is saying is so outside of what they can grasp, or some suggested what they are willing to grasp. Some have said the light he shone was so bright, so contrasting to what they were prepared to receive, they pretended not to see it. And so they stick to what they can see. Where is your father? They asked. You are alone. Where is your father? Jesus continued. Since you don't know who I am, you don't know who my father is. If you knew me, you would also know my father. And John, <laughs> here's the deal. What Jesus just said, let's make no mistake about it. What he just said, the father and I are equal. And he's not speaking about his earthly father. He's speaking about his heavenly father. And this statement of claiming, no human being could claim equality with God. But he just did it. And we know he just did it because John says right after this, and it's not in your handout, but you could read in verse 20, that they did not arrest him because his time had not yet come. The reason John is saying that is because according to their customs and their laws, anyone who would ever dare claim equality with God would be, would be in violation of blasphemy. And to be in violation of such a degree would be to call down judgment upon themselves. And yet John says, but he actually said this. It's almost as if John is highlight. He actually said it. He and the Father are the same. To see him is to see God. They didn't arrest him because his time had not yet come. And Jesus continues to verbally go back and forth with them. It gets to a point where they've had enough. They want directly to get an answer. Verse 25, they ask him, who are you? They demanded, who are you? Jesus replied, the one I have always claimed to be. If you were truly trying to understand, you would know I have always claimed to be the one who is sent. <laughs> 
I have much to say about you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. I have so many things I could say. If I wanted, is what Jesus is saying, I could, I could completely expose who you are. But I won't. Because I have not been sent into the world to condemn. And then he says an amazing word. He says, listen, I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me. I do not go one inch further. I also don't back off by one inch. I say exactly what he wants me to say. He has not sent me to condemn, although I could. And if I did, it'd be completely truthful. <laughs> John says they still didn't understand that he was talking about God, his Father. He was not, they didn't understand this. And so then he presses in in verse 28. Jesus said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, then you will understand that I am he. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. See, if you understand this, you right now will not be able to grasp who I am. You know when you will grasp it? You will grasp it when you nail the Son of Man to the cross, lift him up and sacrifice him for the sins of the world and hear from his lips forgiveness towards those who nailed him. And it is then, it is then that you will recognize this is impossible unless it were divine. Love on full display. When the cross is lifted and the Son of Man is on it, you will know I was always who I claimed to be. It's an amazing statement. Then he says something that's even more remarkable. If he could outdo himself, he does. Because look at what he says. I do nothing on my own but say, listen, I only say only what the Father taught me and the one who sent me is with me. He has not deserted me for I always do what pleases him. You know what Jesus is claiming? Jesus Jesus is claiming something that we would never dare utter. He is saying something that no sane person would ever dare try or attempt to say. Saying, my life is completely synchronized with everything that God desires for me. Everything that is good and right and pure and holy, everything that is loving, everything that represents it, it is completely, there is not one iota that separates me from what he desires. He's saying he's perfect. <laughs> Who of us would ever, ever, yeah, everything I do and say, 100% aligned. None of us. So far out. In this, this is where we now see Truly, how far away we are from who Jesus said he was. It's like a conductor who, he's saying, God is my conductor. I am the orchestra. I don't miss a note. I don't miss a beat. The rhythm is perfect. My life is a symphony. Shows his heart. And here's the thing. Jesus is speaking. He's not doing miracles. He's not doing any signs and wonders. He's uttering words. And 
We don't know what kind of tone he used. We don't know what kind of presence he had. What we do know is that when Jesus spoke, people listened. And when he said certain things, people had to wrestle with it because here's the deal. His words were pregnant with life. They had the weight of gravity itself that pulled and compelled everyone towards them. It had authority behind them. People would at other times leave wondering, what kind of man is this that he speaks in such ways? Who is this man? If we were ever in an audience of somebody who would claim that for themselves, we would be extraordinarily skeptical, would we not? We would immediately seek to figure out how we can dismantle their credibility, how we can come to terms with the fact that this simply cannot be true. There's just no way. It's it's not possible. We know, and the older we get, the more we know. There is no such thing as a perfect human being. And yet, everyone there, much like you and me, examined his words, heard his words, and upon hearing them, many, John says, many, many, in verse 30, many who heard him say, say these things believed in him. Such conviction, he clearly is in his right mind. He, his words have power. They, have the capacity to penetrate my soul. I can't explain it except that there's no other way around it. He must be who he says he is. John says many believed, implying some did not. Many believed, some did not. Everyone had to wrestle. And at that point, Jesus turns towards those who did. And what are we told? In verse 31, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you, okay, you, you truly are my disciples, that is, you are my students, if you remain faithful to my teachings. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus is actually creating a full circle to where all this began. Where did it begin, this discussion? It began in the illumination ceremony meant to remind them of what? Of the pillar of fire that led Israel out of captivity through the wilderness into a land that was promised to them that gave them security and freedom. And Jesus comes back full circle and he says, okay, you, you who actually believe that I am who I say I am, if you stay following me in the same way our ancestors followed that pillar of light in the dark sky, You too will discover what is true about you, what is true about God, what is true about life. And that will lead you to a place where you will experience, you will experience freedom. True freedom. And that that was the claim Jesus made. That was it. This claim ended up unraveling into this massive argument between the religious leaders. Not all of them disbelieved, by the way. Many of them did. One of them became one of the most famous of them, named Paul, who had his own encounter with the light on his path. But they all had to decide, do they embrace what he says about himself or not? Now, those of us who are exploring what it might look like to embrace him as the light of the world, And those of us who have already embraced him, it'd be good for us to 
think about how to unpack this, how this implies itself in our own lives, how this might actually look like in our everyday existence. And so I'd like us to take a couple moments here and just try to navigate this through a couple thoughts. Firstly, I just want to put this up there that what Jesus is saying is that he is able to increase clarity in our lives. That's what he's saying. Jesus is speaking, look, on the backdrop of a ceremony that said, listen, in the night there was a light. And that clarified many things for them. This is what he is claiming to be. I I am reminded of what it looks like for light to invade the darkness. Have we ever experienced, those of us who have been fortunate enough to experience a sunrise? And how beautiful sunrise is, especially in this city that we love. There are many vantage points to take um, to be able to explore together. Some friends of mine are photographers. I try to be sometimes and so sometimes I join them and we go on these ventures and sometimes we go in the darkness of the early, early morning and we make our way to one of the beautiful sceneries, one of the beautiful places in this city and we get there before the light comes out and you know what that's like, especially in a city where the stars aren't really out. If the moon is hidden, you can't see much. If you walk through the woods, if you walk in a place where there isn't any kind of city lights, what you see is darkness. And yet you see something of an image, or you see a shadow, you see a contour here, a contour there, and you start to decipher what this might be. And if we're familiar with it, we can kind of come to somewhat accurate conclusions. But there are times when we don't actually understand what we're seeing. It's too dark. And when the sun rises and the light starts to invade, we start to be able to discern. Oh, that's what that is. We start to see nuance. We start to figure out, it's not exactly what I thought it was, but here I see it clearly. There there have been moments when, I kid you not, I've been standing just waiting for the sun to rise. It's been dark all around me. We've gotten there, we're talking, and we're with our friends, and there has, the whole time, been somebody crouched over as well, waiting for the light to shine, extremely silent, and the sun rises and you start to, this human being appears right in front. It's startling. It's like, what? That's scary. Um, <laughs> things start to become clear. Now, this happens in our own lives. When we embrace him as the light of the world, what happens is we start to gain clarity. For example, we start to gain clarity in terms of who we are who we are. One of the greatest adventures of this life is to know ourselves. And yet it is one of the most difficult and challenging adventures we can ever embark on. And Jesus, Jesus in a different moment in his ministry clarified why this may be actually very difficult. He said this in the message translation. I just love the paraphrase sometimes. I asked him to put this up there. He says, if your first concern is to look after yourself, That is to be completely self-oriented and focused. You'll never find yourself. Self-discovery isn't found when we focus on self, is what Jesus is saying. But if you forget about yourself and look to me, you'll find both yourself and me. The irony Jesus is saying, 
is that what happens is the more we become self-indulged and self-focused, the less we actually know why we are the way we are, how we function, what we're supposed to be doing with our lives. But the more we focus on his light and we embrace his light into our lives and we allow him to illuminate the crevices of our soul, the more we start to discover, oh, this is why I'm built the way I'm built. This is why I have the skills and the gifts and the talents. This is why there are certain passions inside of me and not in them. This is why certain things inside of me just rile me up and not others. Because we start to discover in his light we find our purpose. We find ourselves growing in clarity. This, this is what I'm built for. This is why I have these dreams deposited inside of me. See, the giver of light illuminates clarity. And it doesn't just do it in the, in the areas where we might like. It does it in the areas we might rather avoid. I would like to suggest he also clarifies certain things about pain and suffering. Because there's nothing harder about a faith journey than facing the reality that this world has much pain and much suffering. And there was this book I was reading called True Paradox, How Christianity Makes Sense of Our World, in which David Skeel makes this comparison. And he, he starts off by saying, listen, here's the problem. The problem is that there is evil in our world. There, there is evil in human affairs. And it suggests one of two things. One, that either this God is malicious for causing it, or he is powerless for not stopping it. That is how we tend to interpret this, because pain is evil. And yet, he says, Mr. Skeel does, that to call suffering and pain evil is itself a borrowed term from a worldview that says God himself exists. Only with the premise of a good God can evil things exist. That's what he's saying. He says, now, here's the deal. How do we differentiate this? So how does pain and suffering actually illuminate itself in a Christian frame of reference? And he, he describes two different people walking through pain and suffering. One of them is a renowned journalist who is Christopher Hitchens, and he is also a proclaimed atheist. The other one is, his name was William Stuntz, and he was a law professor at Harvard. And he describes what they would, what, how they walked, how they chronicled their suffering. And this is what he says. Hitchens was an atheist. And this is the difference. He says the difference, the ways these men wrote about their sufferings is instructive. Hitchens hotly denied that his suffering had any moral significance, but found it hard not to describe it in moral terms. Oftentimes he would write, this cancer's malice before catching himself, saying, there I go again assigning value to something that actually doesn't have any. At another point, he would say, oh, I often have this question, why me? Only to come to the conclusion that the cosmos barely bother to reply, why not? That's just life. Skeel says that would be an atheist perspective, a renowned intelligent one. Stunts, by contrast, who lived for a decade with debilitating back pain but died of brain cancer in 2011, readily admitted that there was something wrong with the pain he lived with for a decade. And he says, I have this sense that my back was not made, that I was not made to feel like this. And this sense is so real and hard that I sometimes think I can touch it. I can grasp it. It's not right. 
Why did the famously eloquent atheist Hitchens find it hard to express the wrongness of the disease that was killing him while stunts whom we might have expected to question God's intentions or even his existence had no such trouble? Here's why. Because the Christian God does not simply allow or disallow suffering. He himself suffered. In the person of Jesus Christ, and he uses suffering to renew his children's character. You know what he's saying? He's saying that in this lifetime, nothing can truly explain the why behind what suffering and pain. But what Jesus offers is not necessarily the why, at least on this side of eternity, we don't get that. What we get is that suffering and pain actually illuminates, it awakens something inside of us that says, it is not supposed to be this way. And Jesus would say, you're right. You're right. There is a world, there is a day when all that is wrong will be corrected. And all that is not the way it should be will be the way it should be. And suffering and pain will no longer exist. Pain in this lifetime is a reminder. There is a day coming when everything will be put in its rightful place. That is, that is what we find when the light of the world shines. What else do we find? We find that the light himself didn't unsympathetically simply give us a prescription for our suffering. No, he stepped into it himself and said, when you will see me on the cross, there you will see love fully displayed because he himself suffered with us. Someone suggests far more than we could ever comprehend. And then he transformed the nature of it. Because though it may be extraordinarily painful, the light of the world is able to transform suffering and pain to chisel inside of us some of the most beautiful examples of true character and virtue. Some of the most amazing examples of what real strength looks like. What beauty in all its brilliance is like. This is what he does. He transforms everything. He's able to light, increase clarity. If he does that, he also, what does he also do? He illuminates a direction for our lives. He illuminates a direction for our lives in the same way the pillar lit up the night sky for the Israelites. And so many times what we want, what we desire is to know, God, can you just give me like a GPS uh, roadmap? Like, can you give me a Siri-like device that will tell me uh, which way to turn? Do I go right or left here, God? Can you just give me turn-by-turn -turn instructions? You know, I don't know. I know I have found myself desiring that. And there are times when God will do that. There are times when God will give us a word from his scriptures that will impress upon us a certain direction that is specific to our situation. There are times where people around us will give us counsel and we will discern the capacity to know exactly where to go. But if that's the case, God invites us to a far, if we could say, more developed level of faith which is this, that the more we apply his teachings to our lives, the more we allow his word to ingrain itself inside of us, principles start to be deposited and they start to be set inside of us like a foundation and that creates a moral compass that allows us the freedom to have choice. And we no longer are inhibited. We, we oftentimes fear that there's only one way we are supposed to take in the details of our lives. And what we discover is that God is much more generous in, than that. 
And he is much more faithful than that. And what he invites us to is an adventure of life where we get a skill set that allows us to navigate through the different complexities this life throws our way. And we are able to discover what the psalmist says in Psalm 18. I asked him to put this up there. He says, listen, God's way is perfect. All the Lord's promises prove true. He is a shield for all who look to him for protection. For who is God except the Lord? Who but our God is a solid rock. God arms me with strength and he makes my way perfect. And then look at this. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on the mountain heights. He doesn't direct me step by step, perhaps. No, he does one better. He gives me a skill set, agility. And my life may feel like it's on the edge of a mountain. He holds me up. Like a deer, I am able to stay stable navigate through the challenges this life brings my way. And as I have discovered this, in verse 36, what does he say? You have made a wide path for my feet to keep them from slipping. Your ways, your ways show me there are many more possibilities in this life. Your light shows me a path and a skill set. My path is actually wider than I thought. Though it's treacherous ground, you keep me from slipping. That is what we discover when we embrace the light of the world. And if that's true, what is also true is that Jesus, what did he promise? He said that we will discover that, listen, aligning our lives to Jesus' teaching increases our freedom. That is what he said. That's what he said. If you, know, if, if, you, if you remain faithful to my teachings, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You know what he's saying here? He's saying what scientists have long discovered. It is the most disciplined of us that are the most free. And yet, you know what Jesus doesn't say? You need to buck up and get discipline. He doesn't say that. You know what God says? Here's my son. You have him for relationship. And when you listen to his words and you let them navigate you, you will discover that this relationship is meant to guide you and pick you up when you fall down. He is able to strengthen you and give you the ability to rise back up. And when you violate certain things, he is able to restore you and bring you back within the path you're meant to go in. And you will discover that the more you constrain yourself to his teachings, the greater your freedom will be. Because the guardrails of life will keep you within safety zones. And we will find ourselves free, increasingly free. Free from what? From anxiety because we no longer have to control this life. He is in control. Freedom from unnecessary pain of self-inflicted wounds because he is able to guard us from the violations of principles that will have grave consequences. And if we do experience them, he restores us and he brings us back to a place and says, now let that be a lesson. Let us not go there again. There will be times God will say, not this place in your life. It is meant not to inhibit you, but to set you free. And what else? Freedom from what? Freedom from the need to measure up. Freedom from the guilt and shame we all carry in some way, shape, or form that says you're not good enough. Freedom, how? Because Jesus is the one who stepped in and said, okay, fine. I certainly am. He's the one who measured up. He's the one who said he was able to do everything perfectly. There was no deviation between what God said is right and what he lived. And when we embrace him as the light in our world, he brings us into the light, not to shame or condemn us, but to make us right in God's eyes. Be free. 
You cannot pay for that. I did it for you. We find ourselves asking, who is able? Who is able in this life of mine to illuminate who I truly am? To show me a path where I see none. And to give me what I've never really tasted. True liberty. Freedom. And Jesus, if we hear, if we listen, Jesus says, I am. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will find the path that leads to light, which gives life. May that be the case. May we embrace his light. May we allow him to become the light of our world. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving closing song. But I would just love to pray, ask for his blessing over this word. Lord, I thank you that uh, you came into our world shining a light that was unconquerable by darkness. Nothing, absolutely nothing, not even death itself could snuff you out. And yet you did not come to condemn and shame although you were able to if you wanted to. You came to heal. You came to illuminate. You came to set free. And so I pray, Lord, that you help us as best as we can acknowledge not just that you are the light of the world, but you help us embrace you as the light of our, our world. Would you lead us on? Would you prove yourself faithful? Would you show us the path where to go? And would you give us the taste of true freedom? We ask for this, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.